Welcome to this week's podcast of Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. You know, as Joe was speaking, I was thinking of that uh, verse that says, whatever you've done unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. That God identifies with the marginalized, with the lonely, with the rejected, with the poor. And there's a sense in which sometimes when we walk past or we don't care for the needs in our community, we walk past Jesus. And he identifies, God so identifies. Isn't that amazing that our God identifies not with the powerful, the beautiful? We, we identify with that, right? I want to be beautiful. I want to be powerful. He identifies with the broken and the ugly and the downcast and all of the things that we see that are wrong in our culture and he shows up there and it's a privilege for us to show up there with him and to partner with Echo. And I want to applaud Echo. They actually gave eight laptops to our ministry in Rwanda as well. So they're not just taking care of our people, they're taking care of our missionaries as well. And so that's, that's just a fantastic opportunity uh, to partner with them. Hey, it's good to see you here. If you want to grab a Bible, we're going to finish up Psalm 51. I was supposed to be in this psalm for one week, but it messed me up. And I found myself there for three weeks because as I kept studying each week, I'm like, oh my gosh, there's more. There's more that God keeps, keeps sharing with me. And the, my thought this week as I was laying out this, this message series is how much energy I put into keeping up appearances, how much I care way too much, to be honest with you, about what other people may think about me and how I show up and how they respond to me. We put so much effort into what other people see and what other people think. And all of us have aspects and, and things in our lives that are causing damage. We all have stuff that's causing relational damage, emotional damage, spiritual damage. And instead of addressing it, and allowing people to see it, what do we do? I mean, we try to hide it. Or, at least for me, I try to minimize it. It's not that big a deal. It doesn't matter that much. And we have all this stuff in our lives. We're trying to hide, we're trying to cover, but realize you don't cover it very well. It shows up. It shows up in the way we interact with other people. Because see, sin is not just something that we do against God. Sin actually impacts us and it impacts other people. And when somebody sins against us, whether it's great or small, it creates a wound. Because it's not the way that God intended things to be. And if someone doesn't come up to you and say, hey, listen, forgive me for that. I'm sorry for what I've done. We carry that deficit, relational deficit, spiritual, emotional deficit into life, and we kind of live out of that place of woundedness unless it's addressed. But addressing weaknesses and addressing wounds isn't something in our culture that we tend to do because we don't want to identify with the weak. We want to identify with the strong. And we want to come across as we having, that we have things together. And yet David in Psalm 51, what's amazing about this psalm is the way that God changed him was through his, his weaknesses. That God had to expose David. 
God had to take David to a place where he couldn't hide anymore and he couldn't cover anymore and he couldn't pretend anymore. He took him to this very vulnerable place and realized it didn't happen between David and God. It happened between David and God through Nathan. Nathan had to show up in David's life and see David for David to be changed. Do you realize that? So often we think of confession, it's, it's, a, it's like tennis, right? It's one-on-one. -on -one. But confession is not between us and God. Confession is between us, God, and each other. It's communal. Because see, you're in a covenant community. I don't know if you know this, the church is supposed to be a confessional covenant community. Confessional, there's certain doctrines we confess. But we also confess not just about God, you know, you're supposed to be confessing about yourself. And we're covenantal, meaning the way that I show up for you isn't based on your merit or your behavior. It's based on a promise. In some ways, like a marriage, right? In a marriage relationship, you make promises to each other. This is how I'm going to show up, regardless of how you show up. And see, our God is a covenant-making God, and he says, this is how I'm going to show up for you, regardless of how you show up for me. And we are to be a confessional, covenantal community that loves each other regardless of where you are. But the question is, are we, are we realizing that? Are we living that reality out? And, and it starts with us. You know, it really does. It starts with just noticing the things in your head that never make it out into community with others. And not judging it. I'm not saying judge those things. But how much of your life is just with you? Nobody else knows your thoughts, your struggles, your difficulties. It's just in your head. You know, that creates this, this barrier. David found freedom by bringing all that he was to God and to others. And so we're going to jump back into Psalm 51. And we're going to look at what does it mean to have a broken and contrite heart. Because that's where Psalm 51 goes. It says what God desires, what he wants from us is a broken and contrite heart. So let's jump back in. We're gonna just read verses seven all the way down. We're gonna start in verse seven. The word of the Lord. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And then I'll teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem and then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Hey, uh, let me pray for you. 
Father, thank you for the chance just to be together. It's so rare for us just to be present. And so we just simply take a deep breath and acknowledge that you're with us and we're with each other and you desire to teach us and guide us. And so thank you. Thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. So three things that we looked at last week that I just want to remind you of before we unpack what it means to have a broken and contrite heart, that the reason David was changed was, first of all, he had a renewed vision of God. That what we're sharing today is not a technique to make your life better. Confession's not a technique. Confession is about worship. And in Psalm 51, what you see throughout the psalm is David has a vision of the character of God. And in the presence of God, he starts to see himself. So when you have a renewed vision of God and you get God right, you start getting you right. And as he sees God, he begins to see himself and he starts to recognize his needs. And see, what confession does is it connects your needs to God's strength. It's how we actually live out the doctrine of grace. And we recognize our need for God. And the final thing is that because he had a renewed vision of God and a renewed vision himself, he had a renewed vision of life. He said, God, use me. Use me. And so what is this broken and contrite heart that we see in verse 17? You know, David's life of deception, murder, adultery, it leads him to confess in verse 10, change me, change me. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Now, here's what that looks like. So often we walk away from those moments of failure and we have this self-talk. I'll never do that again. I'll never do that again. I'll never do that again. Gosh, I got to stop doing that. I got to stop doing that. I got to, is that, that's my life. That's self-focused. David doesn't walk away going, I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to do that again. David walks away saying, God, I need you. I need you. I need you. I need you. That's different. See, David's confession was directed towards God because what he needed was God. He didn't need greater morality. He didn't need greater willpower. He needed God. And when he walks away from this time of confession, he's saying, God, change me, work in me, work through me. I desperately, I need you. You know, Jesus captured a broken and contrite heart this way in Matthew chapter five, verse three. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit those who are recognize their need. For, for, they, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Isaiah, he said it this way, thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. He says, I dwell in high and lofty places. But notice, I also dwell with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Where does God show up? We already talked about how God shows up among the least, but he shows up in high and lofty places. You know where else he's attracted to? To those who are broken and contrite. That's where God showed up in David's life. It wasn't this great worship service, right? Where he's singing and God just shows up and the lights and everything's happening and he sees the mountains and the birds. 
he shows up in David's weakness. In David's need, God shows up. Because see, God is attracted to your need. That's why he created you, to need him. But we loathe our neediness, don't we? I don't want to be human. I want to be God. I don't want to need someone. I want to be needed. I want to be enough. David had this broken and contrite heart because he had an accurate view of God. He had an accurate view of himself. And see, to be lowly in heart doesn't mean to despise yourself. It's not to say I'm worthless, I'm I'm a terrible human being. That's actually pride. Because see, pride is focused on the self. Instead, to have a, a lowly and contrite heart is just to recognize the moral chasm between myself and God. To recognize there's, there's a difference and that I need his grace and I need his presence to change me. You know, James chapter four, verse six, captures it this way, that God, he opposes the proud, but he loves to pour out grace to the humble. See, the proud just simply say, I'll fix it. Right? I got it, God. This addiction, I'll kick its butt. I'll overcome it. My marriage, I can do it. I can do it. I just need to read the right books. It's pride, isn't it? Because pride says, I can do it. I got it. Humility says, you got it. You have it. I need you. Humility simply recognizes I'm human, I'm limited, and I need need God. Let me give an example of what this looks like. You know, in the New Testament, the Pharisees were just known for their hypocrisy. It comes out in every single story. But in John chapter 9, there's this story in which Jesus heals a man who was blind from birth. And the Pharisees, man, they're all bent out of shape. They're all up in Jesus' business because he's done this and, and they don't think it's right. And so he has this conversation with these Pharisees, and you know, Jesus sees through them. And that must have been a little frightening. When you think you're keeping up appearances and I'm showing up well, but you see through that. Have you ever had that moment where somebody's got intuition? Like, you're pretending, bro. Come on. And this is what Jesus does. He sees past what they want him to see. And this is what he says in verse 41. Jesus said to them, if you are blind you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. See, what's, what's going on is they're pretending. Now, they're not, they're not pretending they don't have sin, but they're not being honest about what's really going on in their life. They claim to see, they claim to know God, but they're not being needy of God. They claim to have experienced grace, but they're not actually living out on the basis of grace. They claim to see, and yet their eyes are closed. And somehow they look at everyone else around them, and you know what a Pharisee sees? You're different. You're different. You're different. When we see people as different than us, we're not going to extend grace to them. But when we see that they have the same needs that I have, 
That's when grace starts to flow through our lives. David said, I'm tired of pretending. That's verse six. Notice it says, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me with wisdom in the secret heart. What happens when truth gets down to the heart? You start getting honest. You stop pretending, right? Because appearances are not what matters. What matters is God. What matters is my relationship to God. Notice Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions won't prosper. Whoever conceals, not whoever sins. That'd be something different, right? God knows that there is sin in our life. But it says, but he who confesses and forsakes them, he obtains mercy. God's not hindered by our sin. He's, he's hindered by our secrecy, by our need to hide. And yet our culture and our world and, and our insecurities say, hide, hide. It's working. It's working. It's not working. David's not working. David got to where he did with murder and adultery over time, right? It, it wasn't overnight. It's not like, uh oh, adultery. It happens. Why? Because you're hiding. You're hiding. You're pretending. You're not letting anyone else into the fears, the anxieties, the struggles. And you're convinced, I got it. I got it. Until what? I don't got it. And listen, God knows you never had it. <laughs> You never had it. You're human. Here's the point. What keeps us from intimacy with God and what's keeping us from changing is not simply sin. It's our refusal to be honest about our sin. It's our refusal to bring our sin into the light of God's presence and into the presence of others. You know, in John 4, there's another story I want to share. It's a story about a woman who was, who was gathering water, and she was gathering water around noonday. Actually, in John, uh, in John 4, verse 6, it says it was about the sixth hour, and that's, that's a hint. Now, not for us. We're like, what's the sixth hour? It's actually noon. It means six hours after the sun came up, and most women that would gather water would do it in the morning because you got your task during the day, and so she shows up at noon because... Shame. I don't want to be seen. I don't want to be known. I'm going to be rejected. Already the story has this, this air that something's wrong. And she has this conversation with Jesus. And what I love about this conversation is she has all these barriers to keep Jesus over there. Just like I do. Jesus, this is what I'm really mad at in the world. I'm tired of these issues. This is what's messing up my life. And Jesus often says to us in those moments, well, what does that have to actually do about you? Well, I don't know. And so watch what happens in, in John, John 4. It says, this woman said to her, this is verse 19, John 4, verse 19. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Now, our fathers worshiped on this mountain over here, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, she meets Jesus who could meet her needs, and what she brings up is something that's really gonna block Jesus from meeting her needs. Hey, I got a theological debate. Jesus, what's really bothering me is this theological, what's really bothering me is this political issue. This is what you need to address. 
And God is patient with us. And he says, that's not your problem. And she's asking a question that the Samaritans and Jews, they hated each They were cousins, but they worshiped on different mountains, right? And she brings up this issue, Jesus, would you solve, who's doing it right? She thinks this debate is the most important issue in her life, but she's just keeping up appearances. And so notice what happens. Jesus, just like the Pharisees, he can see through it. But he sees through that with love and grace to restore. He said to the woman, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now, notice it's here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people. What kind of people is God seeking? God is spirit and those who worship, worship him in spirit and in truth. What is spirit and in truth? There's an element of doctrinal truth, which is right. I don't think that's what's pressing in this story. He's saying, I want you to bring yourself. Don't bring what you think I want, because what I want is you. And here she brings up this debate, right? What's the goal of it? Let's just keep this thing, you know, let's keep this relationship external, Jesus. If you would just fix these issues in the world, I'd be fine. No, I'll fix those issues and you'd still be a mess. Because see, what God wants is he wants, he wants you. And he doesn't need your worship. He doesn't need your money. If you worship a God that needs your money, that's not a God. What God wants is he wants, he wants you. David's getting that in Psalm 51. He's realizing, watch this in verse three. So jump back. I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified in your words. You're blameless in your, God, he stopped, he stopped, he's not pretending. David's saying, this is the truth about where I am, God. I, I'm not coloring it, I'm not cleaning it up. This is where I am. And because he's honest about himself and God, he knows what he needs. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David doesn't want just his sins to be forgiven. He wants God. So often in, in the church, we reduce the gospel down to this idea that Jesus came to forgive your sin. That's incomplete. Jesus didn't come to forgive your sin. He didn't come to get you to heaven. He came to get you to himself. And as long as we think the goal of confession is, okay, clean that up, get that off the boards. God is kind of a vending machine. And if I do the right things in the right way, then I'm gonna get a blessed life. That's not a relationship. God is so much more sophisticated than that. And yet we approach him in ways, if I push the right buttons and if I say the right incantations and I do the right things, and he says, I'm tired of your sacrifice. Jason, I'm tired of you pretending. I'm tired of your quiet times. I want you. I want you to honestly 
Come to me. Did you notice he said that in verse 16? Stop offering bulls and goats. They mean nothing to me if I don't have you. If they're a way of just setting up another barrier between myself and you. One theologian, he put it this way. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It is a way to get people to God. It's a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy. If we don't want God above all things, have we really been converted by the gospel? How does God respond to your sin? When you think of the person of God and the character of God, it, it matters. And in Hebrews chapter four, there is, we're gonna close with this, but there is a vision of God that is, is shocking. Every time I look at it, it's shocking. It's shocking how God responds to my sin. Hebrews four, verse 15. It says this, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize. And hold that word for a moment with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he was without sin. Let them then with confidence, notice confidence in their sin to draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in times of need. Jesus does not present a vision of God who's distant and disconnected from your sin, but rather a God who has an emotional, deep reaction to your need. And it's captured when he sees our sin. The word is sympathize. You don't sympathize with your sin, right? We hate ourselves for our own sin. God, now we need to unpack what that means. This word sympathize in the Greek, it's, it's a unique word. And it's sympath, sympatheo, I can say that word. It's a compound word, pasco, which means suffer, and this prefix with. To sympathize means to suffer with. The reason I don't sympathize with you is because I have sin. And sin keeps me in myself. And the reason I don't wanna sympathize with your sin is I don't got time. And you're gonna put a burden on my life. If I step into your life and I get to know you and I get to know your problems and your issues, listen, I got a lot of stuff to do. I got a lot going. I got my own problems. Have you ever seen, responded that way to the needs of the world? Sin is what keeps us from sympathizing. And because Jesus has no sin, he has no limits to his sympathy. because he was tempted in every way. Now, every way, I want you to know from a scholarly point of view means every single way. Sexually tempted. Every single way. Yet, he was without sin, so his sympathy, his sympathy is wide. The more sinful we are, the less sympathetic we are to others. Realize that. But Jesus has none of this sin that eats up his sympathy, yet he has all of the experience. Jesus deals with our sin by suffering with us. Now, let me explain to you what that looks like. 
What Jesus invites us to do with our sin is to bring our sins into his wounds. And he takes the consequences. He takes the shame. He takes the guilt. He takes the false identity. He takes the self-condemnation. And he invites us to bring all of our sin into his woundedness so that we could find our healing and our restoration and our renewal. Now, sometimes you need a picture for that. I wanna tell you as we close this story of the difference between Thomas and Peter. Now, Peter is the, you know him as, you can say it, you know it, no, you don't. Doubting disciple, sorry, that was gonna be a moment, it didn't work. (laughs) He's the doubting disciple, right? And we don't think of Peter as the doubting disciple. But see, Thomas, Thomas wasn't there in John 20. Thomas wasn't there when Jesus appeared to the disciples. He was, he was getting lunch, I guess. All right, Jesus appears to the disciples and, and he comes back. He's like, what's going on, guys? And they're like, we saw Jesus. And we're like, there's no way you saw Jesus. Jesus, uh, and he's, he's honest about where he is. He's confessing. This is where I am. Now, Peter, on the other hand, he's never honest about anything. He's constantly denying. He's constantly saying, Jesus, if everybody betrays you, you know, not me, because I'm strong, Jesus. I got it together. I'm going to be a great Christian. He's constantly lying to himself. He's the doubting one. He doesn't think God can accept him. And it takes Jesus sitting down with him, just like us, because I identify with Peter. That's why I hate Peters. I hate people who are honest, because I'm not. I'm not honest. And I hate him. But Jesus sits down with three times. Peter, do you love me? Of course I do. We're tight. Peter, shut up. Do you love me? Yeah, Jesus, remember? No, no, no. Do you love me? Oh. <sighs> yeah, you see me, don't you? I love you. Thomas. Thomas, it's not that Thomas doubts that Jesus is alive. I think Thomas doubted that Jesus was dead. He wasn't there when Jesus died. There's actually a Renaissance painting. uh, I think his name is Caravaggio. Can you put that image up? And it's quite a a radical picture, but it's it's a picture of what God wants us to do with our, our sin. Is that Thomas has to bring his doubt, his weaknesses into Jesus, and you notice in this picture, there's this idea that Jesus is literally inviting Thomas into himself. Look at me. I'm enough for you. You don't need to hide, Thomas. It's me. And Thomas has the boldness, I think, the courage to say, I'm going to bring it all right. I doubt you, but I'm coming for you. I don't believe in you, but I'm going to trust you. God, I'm going to bring all of my weakness into your strength. And that's what heals our sin. It's not pretending or performing. It's bringing our brokenness into his wounds and finding that in that place, we have forgiveness. That's the Christian life. But what's keeping us from it is a lack of honesty. I don't know how that hits you this morning. I know over the last three weeks, I've been just kind of going through my own life. Where are these doors that are shut either to God or to the people in my life? And just 
just writing them down maybe and just noticing that and saying, God, I need to start opening these things. I don't know where God's stirring in you. But as we are about to receive communion, it's a time to reflect. And, and for some of you, you may need to confess, there's gonna be those that are up front to pray with us this morning. And maybe once everyone's gone, you wanna wait and you wanna come up front and, and just have somebody pray over you. That's, that's why we're here. But if you didn't grab the communion elements before we came in, hey, let, let's grab those together and simply be honest with God. You know, there's nothing at stake here, right? There's no performance. You, there's nothing you can impress God with, right? But he can show up if we're willing just to invite him in and say, this is where I, I need you. And so let's grab those elements, hold them together, spend some time in prayer, and then we'll share those elements together. Father, I want to simply confess this morning how much I love to hide. How much I want to control what other people see. And yet, Father, I thank you that you don't despise us when we cover or when we run, you sympathize with our needs, you, you draw close and you help us to see ourselves for, for who we are. And I pray, Father, in Jesus' name, whatever we're hiding behind, whatever we feel we need to control or whatever we feel like we need to manage, I would just ask by the power of the Holy Spirit, we would find that its, it's influence in our life would begin to dissipate because it's not why we're loved or accepted. We're loved or accepted through faith in what Jesus has done for us. And what changes us is not more information and not a better sermon or pastor. What changes us is honesty in your presence. Thank you for that reality and truth. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, He took bread, he broke it, he gave thanks. He said, take and eat for this is my body, which is broken for you. Let us receive it together in remembrance of him.
In the same way, after supper, he took a cup. So this cup, it represents the new covenant that is established in my blood. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns.